Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When we think of pirates, our minds either turn to Long John Silver and the Jolly Roger, or perhaps Somali pirates off the Horn of Africa, which is something we certainly need to cover on this podcast. Yet we don't think about pirates and the American Revolution. I mean... Why would we? What role did pirates have during the Revolutionary War? Well, to tell us all about this remarkable history, we welcome Bob Patton back onto the podcast. Bob is the author of Patriot Pirates, the privateer war for freedom and fortune in the American Revolution. And he takes us through the role played by American pirates against the British, the battles fought between them during the Revolutionary War. Enjoy. Welcome to the Warfare Podcast. Hello. How are you doing? Hello, James. Thanks for having me. Well, thank you for having me. We are literally in your home in Connecticut. I feel very welcome. I've got a coffee in my hand. And I'm set to talk about the American Revolution and piracy. And I was hooked on this, Bob, because I came across the strapline of your book. And it says that courage capitalism, naval warfare, and international political intrigue are set on the high seas during the American Revolution. There is a lot to deliver on that. Even better, it's not hyperbole. It actually works because it it applies to the time and it certainly applies to the endeavors of these intrepid, somewhat ornery, somewhat outside the bounds mariners that uh, decided to do for themselves and also, by the way, for their country, which is really the great interest to me, that combination of the two impulses. Well, you're lucky we have a truly international listenership, so this won't just be British people getting angry and you know, a little bit sour about losing the Revolutionary War. You're going to be preaching to the choir as well. I can't wait, and I'll do my best for you. <laughs> All right, well, take us back to 1775 and the start of the American Revolution against British rule. Who were these pirates that rose up, and where do they come from? Well, it was really a contingency plan under duress uh, put in place by George Washington. He had, you know, moved his sort of ragtag force of a forming Continental Army and had fairly successfully blockaded from the land Boston. And so within Boston, Massachusetts, you had a very large contingent of, number one, loyalist citizens and um, naval and British military as well. And uh, he was unable to mount a sufficient attack 
And likewise, the British military were unable to mount a sufficient breakout. And so it was really truly a stalemate. And there was a lot of pressure on Washington, as there was throughout the war, to have successes, to achieve certain benchmarks so he could keep the momentum going among the people to continue to fight this war for independence from Britain. And so really he was stuck on the heights of Dorchester outside Boston saying, what the hell am I going to do? Because I can't move them out and they can't move me and we can't stay here forever because I'll lose momentum. It was a back and forward stalemate at that point, wasn't it? Absolute stalemate. And both sides, I think, knew that it couldn't last forever. But really, I think the British probably were better positioned to supply themselves and outlast the Continental Army. So Washington, again, out of desperation, decided after being besieged by local mariners saying, we can help, we can help. I'll tell you, I was always amused as I was doing my research, how you could get to the commander in chief with a note and saying, hey, I have an idea. We can bomb some of these ships in in the harbor. And he would listen and he said, well, that might work and this won't work. But finally, he was solicited by some local mariners who said, listen, you can get the enthusiasms of these great sailors that we have in this uh, fishing and trade industry based in New England, and they can intercept British trade coming in and it could be good for all of us. We'll take some of the trade goods, you'll cut off British supplies and everyone's a winner. And really out of having no other alternative, he said, let's do it. So he commissioned a handful of small privately owned vessels gave them sort of continental designation, which eventually he veered away from. And he said, you guys go out and just intercept trade and you can keep what you capture and it will do uh, my effort good in terms of you know isolating the British forces there. And off they went and it was pretty much a disaster. These were free agents, these mariners, and they were kind of wild in their tactics and some were better sailors than others. Some talked a good game, I think, and some didn't. One of his early commanders uh, said, I'm just the most terrific mariner you'll ever see a great naval fighter and it turned out he was absolutely terrified of sailing out of sight of land so this is not someone that can really uh, lead a a maritime effort plus they were very shall we say careless in the kinds of ships they waylaid if if it happened to be an american vessel coming down the coast of maine they'd grab it anyway and ask questions later you know (laughs) so finally washington said i've had enough of them i really can't handle it it's the most unruly bunch i've ever dealt with these early continental sailors And he just essentially turned it completely over to the private side. This harkened back to a tradition of centuries, which was the letter of mark or the privateer commission, which we could talk about that distinction. It's something that throughout history, if you had a legitimate government in, you know, in hostilities with another legitimate government, you could empower private citizens to plunder enemy trade in the name of their country and also as part of their payment, keep the goods that they that they stole. These are all very underhand tactics, Bob. And the British had a knack for labelling the Americans at this point as privateers, as pirates. Doesn't this just all feed into this British idea that this isn't a proper revolution? This is just people trying to make money. I think that they were, they being the British command structure, were initially quite dismissive of this. They were hearing rumors of this rabble that we're taking to sea and they're not going to be a bother and we'll crush them as we're going to crush the entire continental effort there. That's what, that was the presumption. Interestingly, though, you can see early letters from Royal Navy officers and men writing home saying, these pirates, these privateers, they fight. This might not be as easy as we think. So you have this sort of undercurrent of word from the front, so to speak, that this might not be as easy as is being advertised back home in in, in London and elsewhere in Britain. So they're they're sanctioned under Washington. They're given that power to go and to plunder and to intercept on behalf of the revolutionary cause. It's hard to say that they're an early US Navy. They're more kind of uh, a corporate bunch of people trying to look and make a bit of money whilst having that passion for independence. Really, 
it was a dubious effort for Washington at best because really he was just overwhelmed by the unruliness and the difficulties he had in just controlling them. And he said, I just really can't deal with it anymore. And it almost kind of faltered that it might have faded away. And one episode really changed everything when one large vessel, an incoming British supply vessel called the Nancy, which was laden with blankets, muskets, gunpowder, a very, very large mortar. It was said to be the largest mortar that was ever brought to the continental United States at the time. It wasn't, they weren't the United States known then. So all the things you need to win a battle, win a war. And the point was, it was a very, very large and lucrative prize. And when the Nancy was captured and brought into a friendly port, you know, down the coast from Boston, and it was unloaded, and this was going to be plunder that would be distributed among the crew of this vessel that had captured them, this spread like wildfire across the colonies. And it's interesting, you see, it's a typical example of rumor, because initially it was, it might be worth maybe 3,000 pounds sterling. And then another letter says, oh, I think it's worth 10,000 pounds sterling. And then we have a letter from Thomas Jefferson saying, we've heard that the Continentals captured a vessel that has 30,000 pounds of equipment on it, and they're going to be all rich, and we've all got to support this enterprise. So once that happened, in all of these ports down the American coastline, people said, we want in on this. And Continental Congress recognized that this could be tapped, because the Congress... It had no legitimacy on the international stage, although it conceived of itself as a legitimate new government of this new rising entity, which would eventually become the United States of America. So they hearkened back to the tradition of, hey, we're a legitimate government. We can empower legally privateers to go and plunder on behalf of our war effort. And that's legal under the international system of laws. On the other side of the Atlantic, there was no recognition of the Continental Congress. So they were considered to be as illegitimate as the privateers that they were endorsing. And as a result, there was a complete disconnect between how the Continental Congress envisioned this force that they were unleashing and how the British government and many of the British citizenry saw it. And that disparity fueled so much animosity and so much fury. And it really is where the privateers of America gained the designation of just outlaws and pirates unworthy of any kind of due process if should they be captured or uh, met in battle. That's where the real piracy element comes in from the perception of the enemy, the British, that these were nothing but. So once the pirate numbers start to, to rise up and people start to get a sniff of, of, of this money, does it become a real challenge for the British, for the Royal Navy, or are they able to counter this? Do they start to implement some tactics that really make it hard for the privateers, the pirates themselves? Very, very much so. Finally, they do recognize because there are now hundreds and then ultimately thousands of private vessels, basically converted trade ships, converted uh, fishing vessels, sometimes quite small. One or two cannon aboard, a good crew that could find an unarmed vessel. They were not looking to engage in battle with the Royal Navy. They were out there to find unarmed trade ships that were coming in first to New England, and then you move right down the coastline as the theater of war expanded. It goes down through Rhode Island, New York, eventually off the Carolinas, and then into the Caribbean, which is really the breadbasket, the hub of trade from Britain to the New World, to the American colonies and elsewhere. So the privateers ultimately begin to migrate as a group down through the Caribbean. And now you have French-owned islands down there where they can find sanctuary. This then begins to introduce a lot of political tensions between Britain and France. What ultimately comes to pass is the British Navy finally recognizes that this is a problem and we have to now put in 
tactics and devote real resources to destroying them. That's because this starts to become a broader great power issue as well. If you've got the French involved here, then you really need to start to counter this before it becomes a massive problem. But first of all, your next book needs to be called The Revolutionary Pirates of the Caribbean, right? And maybe we're going to rename this episode. But secondly, what are those tactics, those strategies that the British put in place? Well, first of all, they began to have to use convoys. So they couldn't send merchant vessels um, as lone wolves across the sea because they were vulnerable. So consequently, you began to have the need of Royal Navy protection for these uh, convoys of trade ships. That then begins to put stress on the Royal Navy. This then forces them to reintroduce conscription and the press, you know, the notorious press where the Royal Navy would snatch seemingly eligible men from their local pub and say, guess what, you're in the Navy, and they would take them aboard, and that was that. And this creates animosity because none of the Brits like the press. So this created tensions within society, which was to the advantage of the American cause. So this need for the Royal Navy, number one, to start instituting convoys and having to devote more and more warships to just protecting trade rather than going out there and seeking to blockade American ports and whatnot. And then finally, I think it was in 1777 that the British finally decide to fight fire with fire and they empower their own legitimate privateer vessels to go and take on privateers and intercept trade going to America from, say, France or other European countries that were trying to dodge the strictures against trade with America. So now you have privateers of both sides circulating and patrolling and on the hunt, not looking to have battle with one another. These were not interested in fighting and drawing enemy blood. They didn't want that at all. In fact, their owners of these vessels said, you see the, a British flag on the horizon, go the other direction. You're not looking to, to have battle. You so are this looking. was never pirates v. pirates? No. This is a more opportunism. It was absolute opportunism. And of course, the other thing that would, what's, you will see among Royal Navy tactics, you'll find them baiting ships. You'll find them putting out dummies there and hiding their cannon and looking like they're a helpless vessel, getting the privateers to come in. And then suddenly, you know, up goes the Royal Navy ensign and out, you know, they throw open the gun ports. And now there are so many instances of, in those cases these privateers, even though they might have been armed and some of the vessels got relatively large with, you know, 100 crew, they had no chance against trained Royal Navy. They were just destroyed and these vessels would go down in minutes and you know, no record of who died and we'll never know. We'll never know how many privateers, how many citizens that joined with this dual impulse of help the cause, get rich, and we never heard from them again. And the numbers are into the tens of thousands uh, at least. I'm shocked by the massive military impact of this. We start by talking about a few Patriot pirates and we move through to this changing the entire way in which the Royal Navy is recruiting and operating. The sheer pressure that must have put on Royal Navy resources to establish convoys knows no bounds. What was the political reaction to this? Well, this is, I think, very interesting because what the privateering phenomenon in America did, beyond the strategic elements that it had of simply intercepting British supply ships and all that were coming to support the British war effort, they were creating tensions within British society. Because again, when Lord North, the um, then Prime Minister of Britain, put in colloquially called the Pirate Act, which was now to name these American privateers, if they were captured, their paperwork that signed by the illegitimate Continental Congress, which said they are legitimate privateers per international law, they must be treated as proper prisoners of war. The, the Pirate Act that Lord North put in said not at all. They are mere pirates. If they could be shot on the spot, they can be captured, they can be imprisoned without due process. Well, 
On the one hand, we understand that comes out of frustration, but what that did was also awaken an anti-war movement within British society, within certain elements of British society, who said, we're as bad as they are now. We've lost the rule of law. It reminded me in a great deal of, in America, the controversy of prisoners at Guantanamo when they were held, and they were held without due process um, for a long, long time, and it created a political wave in America against, first of all, this kind of treatment of these Guantanamo prisoners and how it was a bad reflection on us. And then that supported a kind of a, a desire to pull away from this conflict in the Middle East. Well, the parallel is direct to what many in the British society saw as a denigration of our values. We cannot support this tooth for a tooth, eye for an eye behavior toward these mere privateers. So this was very good for the American cause because now you are fighting them strategically. You're creating unrest and sort of a counter movement among British society against the war and against what it's doing to society. You're hitting them also economically because you're intercepting trade ships. You're reducing the amount of income and wealth that can be extracted from the New World and brought back to Britain because the privateers were intercepting going or coming. They didn't care. They snatched it. And then finally, the third element was the political advantage that it brought to the American cause because once they were operating closer and closer to Britain and in international waters, first in the Caribbean and then across, right around the English Channel and all the rest, they were hopping into French ports to unload their prizes. This created tensions between Britain and France, which was exactly what the American leadership wanted, because that was the only way they were going to win the war if France came in overtly and openly as a supporter. And this was initiated, or at least supported greatly by the privateering effort in America, which, which introduced these tensions and these violations of agreements between France and Britain. Now, there's so much to unpack there. And the fact that these privateers, the way that they're treated, starts to divide public opinion mm -hmm. in the UK and starts to garner them support is fascinating in itself. But there's one thing you said there, which was they were operating around the British Isles. Yes. They, they got that far across the Atlantic. They were challenging the Royal Navy on, on home ground. They absolutely were. And again, it could not have been supported without an ability to hop into French ports secretly, both to replenish to refurbish their weaponry, their supplies, and also to unload their prizes. And when Benjamin Franklin went as a representative of the Continental Congress to Paris in 1776, he was very, very cunning in his public persona, which was, we are not here to violate agreements between France and Britain. We would never do that. We are respectful of our host country, France. Meanwhile, he's sending secret letters, bring your supplies, tell the privateers to come into the French ports, unload here. And meanwhile, British spies in France knew this was going on. They're protesting government to government. And Benjamin Franklin is saying, you know, not, I have no idea what you're saying. I'm writing letters at home saying they should never do this. But it was all about introducing tensions and distrust between France and Britain, along with all the other strategic and political elements that it privateering affected in other theaters. And so were the French benefiting of this as well then? Were they making good money? They were making good money. And there are, just as in America, there are fortunes were being built around privateering. Because in America, the funders, the supporters of privateers, whether they were on the vessels themselves or whether they were financing them, out of those kernels have grown great 
fortunes that last to this day in America. And the same was true in France. This was an underhanded way to basically exploit the war effort. And it had political advantages for the American cause that Benjamin Franklin, who was so clever in how he dealt with this, was able to exploit. And he was very two-faced about it. And it drove the British leadership in Paris, the ambassador, etc., up the wall because they said everybody in France knows this is going on, but no one is absolutely identifying it and kicking the Americans out. And as a result, ultimately, the French had to sort of come out of the woodwork, the French leadership, and say, we are going to support this cause. And then it was, then really the war was essentially decided because once France came in, it was just a matter of time before Britain would say, this is not sustainable for us. But while not the only initiator of that split of not friends, but at least they were not at war, France and Britain, privateering was a real thorn that began to exploit and widen that split. Hi there, I'm Don Wildman, the host of the brand new podcast, American History Hit. Join me twice a week as I explore the past to help us understand the United States today. You'll hear how Codebreakers uncovered secret Japanese plans for the Battle of Midway. Visit Chief Poetin as he prepares for war with the British. See Walt Disney accuse his former colleagues of being communists and uncover the hidden history that lies beneath Central Park. From pre-colonial America to independence, slavery to civil rights, the gold rush to the space race. I'll be speaking to leading experts to delve into America's past. New episodes dropping every Monday and Thursday. So join me on American History Hit, a podcast by History Hit. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Now, in your book, you say that the Patriot pirates, these privateers, hammered the British economy, infuriated the Royal Navy, and humiliated 
the crown. Everything that you've just said appears to back that up. But could you go one step further and to say that this was a pivotal group that were vital to success, to victory in the Revolutionary War? I truly believe that. If you look at the Continental Navy, and more eminent historians than I will certainly agree with this, the Continental Navy, the uniformed Navy, was a non-factor strategically in the war. John Paul Jones, the great captain, hated privateers, by the way, because they stole manpower from his ability to man his vessels. And yet he was also tempted to invest in privateers as well. This was the common dichotomy that one sees in American society. But the Continental Navy strategically had no impact on the war. They just didn't. They had less than a half dozen vessels ultimately got to sea, and most of them uh, were sunk. The privateers, meanwhile, took to the sea by the thousands and died by the thousands. But as Robert Morris, a great Philadelphia financier, many call him the financier of the revolution, who, by the way, at the end of the war had lost everything and died you know, in debtor's prison, another story. But he said, finance privateers, one successful voyage is worth six that are lost. And that's sort of the odds that they were because one ship, if you could bring in a real laden British trade vessel with whatever it might be, blankets, muskets, or housewares, lace, silver, whatever it might be, this was auctioned off at the home ports or in French ports later in the war. And then the spoils were divided. In America, those spoils were in part to go to the government, but that became very, very ambiguous. The accounting was pretty vague at best. And so today we can identify, certainly among certain American families that have, you know, generational wealth to this day, it can be traced all the way back. And this might be the Tracys, the Livingstons, the Peabodys. There are many, many families that can look back and say, we got our start in privateering. The other element that I think is very interesting is privateering was so perilous and so deadly to those who embarked in it. Most, again, were not successful. You have diaries of sailors that went out there with the high hopes of this is going to be my big score and I'm going to bring in and I'm going to support my family and all the rest. And either they die or they come back with nothing and they're not heard from for years and they get captured and they're held in prison. And But one or two successes can change everything. What happened in America was this expertise that began to be developed among the mariner class, the great, you know, saltwater colonials, as they were called, from beginning in New England, but moving right down the coastline. They developed a real capability to navigate, to move across the Atlantic. And one sees after the war, first of all, fortunes are made. Many are lost, many die, but fortunes are made. You also see after the war, these very now accomplished and experienced captains and sailors needed work. What were they going to do? Many went into the slave trade. And so you see now as this carryover after the war, you can go to, of all colonies, Rhode Island. Now, Rhode Island had, you know, there were no slaves permitted, but Rhode Island was a real hub of the triangular trade, which was, you know, predated the war in which the triangular trade worked this way. You could have rum made in Rhode Island. They had many, many distilleries that rum would be sent to Europe and it would be sold in European ports and now there is money. The money goes to West Africa and you pick up slaves in West Africa. The slaves are then brought to the West Indies where they are then converted to molasses and sugar. The molasses and sugar goes back to Rhode Island. You distill your spirits from there and that's the cycle. An African-American, a slave, doesn't have to set foot in Rhode Island for the money to end up in Rhode Island. So it's very interesting to look at the legacy of privateering through the war that afterward, you will find the largest number of registered slave vessels was in Rhode Island after the war. And that's a direct growth from the privateering that was 
again, a great center was Newport and Providence of privateering in America. The Rhode Islanders were notorious. I mean, they were one of the last holdouts to join the, the new American entity as it was formed after the war because they liked their independence. This is one of the elements that I discovered studying privateering, you know, how it had this political element, it had a strategic element, it had an economic element, certainly, and finally it had this consequence later of really changing some of American life, American cultural life, by introducing wealth in the families, by somewhat promoting and making more efficient, God help us, the, the slave trade. And then finally, if I would add another element that privateering added, because it was so costly, conglomerates began to form to hedge losses. Initially, if you go back, and I think this is probably two of most colonial entities at the time, capitalism was usually a family enterprise. You'll see a business that was so-and-so and sons, or the Brown Brothers of Rhode Island. Because you trusted your family, you didn't go outside of that. And this is, was the core of American business development. It began within a household, with an extended family. But as they began to get into privateers, as a businessman would say, I want to fund a privateer, he'd say, but it's expensive and I might lose everything, so I'm going to get together a conglomerate and we'll insure it together and we'll then hedge our losses and share our winnings. This introduced a collectivism in America that was not there beforehand. So again, another after effect of privateering that was developed through this American conflict with Britain. So there's so many legacies of this. And for me, as you were talking through that, I just couldn't stop thinking about those expertise crafted on the high seas during the Revolutionary War that then provide these captains and their crew with the skills to circumnavigate the globe and to then so horrifically start to just increase the slave trade beyond the bounds of that ever seen before. It's a obviously unfortunate after effect of this war where people had developed an expertise at sea. They needed to work. And so they were hired. And also, many, many privateers were converted to slave ships. By privateers, I mean the vessels themselves. They were converted. The weapons were taken off and they opened up the cargo bays. And the middle passage um, was the next step that uh, where... Slaves were brought, and that horrific journey where we know so many perished, this can be traced not exclusively, but the privateering wave of the war had this aftermath of now contributing to a more efficient uh, slave trade. And am I right in thinking that this is at a time when Britain is in its midst of its abolitionist movement, so it's moving away from the slave mm -hmm. trade and slavery, so there is an economic void to fill for the United States? Absolutely, because when you cut off this major trading partner, which Britain, of course, was, yeah. you have to find other sources, and that was one. And then finally, what I would say, let's always go back to the ground level, although we're talking about salt water, experiences of the privateers. We must never forget just the sheer courage, maybe desperation, maybe they were so poor, or they didn't want to carry a musket on land, so they, they hopped a vessel. The death toll was horrific for the privateers of America. Um, again, once the Pirate Act was passed in Britain, they could expect no quarter. They could expect no due process if they were captured at sea. Interestingly, some of the most violent battles that were fought were not between American privateers and Royal Navy. It was between British privateers and American privateers because then they really knew that they didn't know what the experience would be on the other side. They could expect no mercy. Likewise, the British privateers knew that they were vulnerable to just being lined up and shot or thrown into the nearest hold of a prison anywhere. So you have a real desperation that enters into these battles and they didn't want them. They both sides really wanted to avoid them. But you have to point out that for all of their 
flaws. These privateers, and they were by the thousands, they really impacted the war effort strategically. They impacted the life in America. They helped bring an economic boon to the American Continental Congress, which didn't have, excuse my French, a pot to piss in. Their only wealth was their own fortitude and natural resources, which they were trying to get to Europe and France and bring back weapons and gunpowder and goods for war. All of these elements were affected by privateering. And I just, for myself, as I researched and wrote the book, it awakened my enthusiasm for the Revolutionary War, which is an odd thing to say, but I grew up on tales of the American Civil War. I had many ancestors that fought in it, so it became, it was much more palpable to me, much more kind of visceral, and as a boy, and even as a, as a grown man, it just had some real power. The revolution is almost sort of dusty, and of course we won. It was always destined that America would win, and why, why would we ever question that? Well, of course, that was not true. And for myself, looking at this experience of the privateers really gave me a new way to understand how the war opened from one theater to the next, and how important trade goods and how important economic concerns and economic pressures were, and finally how politically it really had an impact on uh, bringing France into the war. Well, I knew nothing about this aspect of the Revolutionary War. I'm sure so many of our listeners didn't know anything about it as well. So tell us, where can we read more about this, Bob? Well, my little old book is a perfectly good place to start. It's called (laughs) Patriot Pirates, but there are... Even going back 100 years, when I was digging through, first of all, the American naval records are voluminous, so one can go there. But there have been books written over generations where a little bit more and more is gathered about the strategic impact, the actual mechanics of privateering, which are very interesting too, because the contracts that were developed between the financiers who backed the vessels and the captains, and there would be a pay scale. You know, the captain got so much, the medic got so much, the chaplain got so much, and then finally there were the, the cabin boys and all the rest, and they would all share to some degree. You gotta know what you're fighting for. You gotta know what you're fighting for, and you have some books that have come out which really go into the, the daring do and uh, the kind of colorful aspects of war at sea. Always, everyone loves to read that. It's fascinating to how people, you know, behave under these unimaginable circumstances and travail. And then there are some books which I found particularly interesting and was challenged to make interesting to both to myself and to readers was the financial aspect. How did it help the Continental Congress, which, as I say, was, was, had no real assets, had no currency that was recognized anywhere, How did they fund the war? How did they get soldiers to go out there and fight and put uniforms on their back and guns in their hands? And privateering brought in hard wealth, whether goods or captured coin. And all of these things played into this story. And many, many writers have picked up different aspects. And I would urge anyone to just start in maritime history and then move into the economic side because the economic side is really, really interesting. And it has long carryover effects to American life and American capitalism. And that age-old conflict that every person, I think, has in wherever they're from about serving the common good and yet serving oneself. Privateering was the perfect example of weighing the two. I want to do well for my country, but I also want to do well for myself. And that balance tilts in every case. Some go very hard toward the piracy side, and I'm going to keep what I get. And others were wonderfully selfless patriots that did all for the common good and rather less for themselves and maybe regretted it later. But nevertheless, that conflict is a very interesting one. Well, Bob, you promised courage. You promised capitalism, naval warfare and international political intrigue. And you delivered on that. Thank you so much for your time and for coming on the Warfare Podcast. You're kind to have me. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. But before you go, I've got a very exciting special offer for Warfare listeners. 
Over on History Hit TV, we're building the world's best history channel on demand, and we want to share it with you. When you sign up for a monthly subscription using the code WARFARE, you'll get two things. You'll get two weeks free, followed by your first three months with 50% off. We release two exclusive new documentaries every week, including my new series, Traces of War. And you'll get access to every episode of our ever-growing podcast network, ad-free. So you can listen to Warfare without the interruptions, but also to all our shows like Matt and Cat on Gone Medieval or Tristan on The Ancients. To sign up, just follow the link in the show notes. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.